Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I hope you have been enjoying them. I am so excited to bring you today's episode because um, I am interviewing Monique Middlecoff. Now, she was... um, involved. She was a, you know, first author of one of my absolute favorite studies, which is called The Impact of Acute and Chronic Strenuous Exercise on Pelvic Floor Muscle Strength and Support in Oliparous Healthy Women. So it was one of the first research studies that were looking at women doing CrossFit. Um, and it was such a fun study to read, but she is so lovely and she is so passionate. Um, if you don't know much about her, She has a PhD in exercise physiology. She is a registered clinical exercise physiologist through the American College of Sports Medicine and a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the National Strength and Conditioning Association. She's been a certified personal trainer um, with the NSCA, ACSM, and the National Academy of Sports Medicine for over 10 years. She is a certified higher education teaching specialist and has instructed courses ranging from introductory to graduate level, including kinesiology, ex-phys, ex-physiology in the lab, resistance training, fitness foundations, aging and exercise, skeletal mechanics. She's also a former NCAA Division I volleyball athlete. And I'm pretty sure we were meant to be best friends in some other lifetime. Um, You will hear her passion when she is talking about that study. Um, She also questions me on some parts of my study, but we had such a good conversation. So I really hope you guys enjoy this chat. I want you to tell me what you were doing before you did your PhD and what made you then decide to do a PhD, especially on the topic that you did. Because like I said, you're your research paper and I've read your thesis as well um I don't know do people read thesis like it's out there that's a good okay I get an update when it gets downloaded so like once a month I find out that you know a few extra hundred people have read it which is kind of unique I suppose or have I downloaded it a couple hundred times Ah! (laughs) if you look at the IP it could actually be It could be me because I have about 10 places I keep articles and then EndNote shuts down. So then I've got papers and then my computer's saving it in five spots and then I can't find it. So I download it again. Yeah. Oh, I I just downloaded it again. Thank thank you so much for being at least a hundred of those downloads. That's right. I'm a hundred of your downloads. Um, Yeah. Okay. So what, what were you doing before PhD? Okay. Lori, I just, I am so happy to have this conversation with you because I just think you're wonderful and it does feel like just chatting with a friend, which makes it so fun. Oh, you so nice. Okay, so I think you know that I played volleyball all through college and I had this interest, even when I was really young, that I knew I loved biology and I knew I loved athletics. Those things felt completely comfortable to me, but to be completely honest, 
in my naive state, I didn't know that there was a field that blended the two together in any sort of meaningful way that, you know, it's kind of the pathway that I got to exercise physiology. But um, I played volleyball in college, loved it. I started off in this like health promotion space out of just, and I knew I wanted to go that direction, but I didn't know exactly what it looked like. And then I sat in an exercise science class and I kid you not, Dr. Dan Heil, who I just adore. And you know, if you've had those times where you just know like, oh, this is me. Like this, I'm not trying to be something different. Like this is who I am. It, it He just taught me the basics of exercise science. And I just thought that was the best thing I'd ever experienced. Yeah. So yeah, through my undergrad, I did um, exercise science. I went to uh, right onto my master's program. And once I found the niche of exercise physiology, especially kind of in the umbrella of exercise science, that was where I was home because I loved biology and I knew I, I, I love understanding why things work. I, I appreciate things, you know, if I know that things work, but if someone can tell me this is why it works and this is how it's meaningful, Oh, I am hook, line, and sinker about it. So that's why the fizz part for me felt so meaningful, and I just absolutely loved it. So in my master's program, I wanted to study something that felt meaningful to me. And so volleyball was something that I did on a day-to-day basis, and I felt like in the literature, you know, how every science class, you end up doing some sort of lit review in some way. And of course, because I was interested in it, volleyball came up in everything that I wanted to look at at the time. And I felt like there were no norms established at the time to give me any sort of indication of if you're in high school and you want to go to college, what are some of the standards that you should be shooting for? I couldn't find it. I couldn't find any books. I didn't know. And then I thought, what if, what if we developed a set of norms? So if you were in high school, you could know kind of what's an expected standard with a vertical jump or agility tests or something like that. So that's what I went Very down. Cool. The, yeah, I went down that pathway in my um, master's program. And then I think you know this part too. Getting the research bug was, it was like this bizarre sense of completely empowering and super fun all at the same time of like, I am writing something that changes the way that other people will act and behave and think because of the work I did. That is nuts to me. So of course, (laughs) of course the PhD was the next step. So I reached out to who ended up being my dissertation chair, uh, Dr. Janet Shaw at the University of Utah. And we just had this great discussion together on the phone. And she told me of some of the work that she was doing in the pelvic floor field. And it really related with what I was seeing on a volleyball court because we're having this, you know, high intra-abdominal pressure. We're noticing, you know, high ground reaction force, landing mechanics, the strength conditioning uh, side that I loved so much. And then this piece that no one really wanted to talk about, especially um, kind of that talk about in the locker room, but don't really talk about it anywhere else was this high level of incontinence. And in this conversation with Dr. Shaw, she was just telling me some of the work that she had been doing around incontinence with Dr. Ingrid Nygaard, who can I just tell you, I fangirl over her so hard. Oh, I know. Oh my gosh. Okay. In real, you know how someone is great on paper and then you meet them in real life and you think, oh, shut up. Are you the best thing ever? She is. She is absolutely as brilliant and wonderful and kind-hearted in real life. Is that how you say her name? I've always wondered. Oh, yeah. It's Ingrid Nygaard. I do say it right. Okay. Woohoo. I was like, I am so butchering the name, but I'm not. That's great. (laughs) Look at you. 
process? <laughs> yes, she's she's lovely. And so that's what really got me um, not only interested in going to the University of Utah, but working with their research group specifically. They had so many projects happening all at once. And Dr. Nygaard had done a lot of work in the incontinence field. She's a urogynecologist by trade. And so she has just this wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And Dr. Shaw, who is the dean of the university at the time, she was teaching a lot of exercise physiology and then also looking at a lot of um, bone loading mechanics, osteoporosis. And those two together, bringing the physical activity space and the gynecology and urogynecology fields together, dynamite. I wanted all of it. I loved it. That's the longest intro of all time, Lori. No, that is perfect. So um, so your research team, or at least the research team on this paper, so it was yeah. you, Marlene Egger, yes. Ingrid Nygaard, and yes. Janet Shaw. Yes. yes. What a strong and, team. Um, Yes, and Dr. Egger is a statistician, and she is whip smart with stats. So as a part of that research team, she comes with a a tremendous background in um, design and especially, um, oh gosh, all of the details about stats that can get really, really sticky. She knows it inherently, and she knows it so well. So having her as part of the team, it's just, it's a dynamite approach. I love working with them. Now, so this was published in 2016, which means you would have been working on it when? Oh, gosh. When did we work on it? This, I think I think we actually submitted it in 2015, in February of 2015. So it was, um, oh, gosh, two and a half years before then. So we were in the middle of it in the 13s. So that's like seven, eight years ago. How was it that long ago? I know. That feels that's, like that went fast. I thought about that when I was messaging you because we've been messaging each other for, you know, a couple yes. years trying to organize this. Yeah. And then I was sitting there today going, oh, my God, you have to rem- – I'm asking you to remember something that you did <laughs> how long ago? Are you going to remember anything? <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe, I hope so. I hope so. Um, well, so, so you have this team and then who – like was it your idea to – kind of decide, okay, I want to look at women who are doing, um, you know, strenuous activity. And when you say strenuous activity, what, what made you go, okay, I'm going to look at this field for strenuous activity? Totally. So the University of Utah has a really unique, maybe um, population. And so I was a part of a big study called the FACT study, where we were looking at a lot of factors in a huge, gigantic sample in Utah, um, looking at factors of physical activity and uh, signs of pelvic floor dysfunction. And in that study, it was sort of the next logical step to say, okay, if we're identifying that, you know, a series of these factors are indicating that they are predictors of uh, maybe prolapse down the road or some additional um, maybe incontinence symptoms, what if we look more into that physical activity piece to understand that more fully? Because I think we can understand maybe um, the differences in being completely inactive or active, but even within that active category, there's such a difference between um, doing strenuous exercise and doing maybe what we would call recreational activity. And that strenuous exercise, there had been a lot of even position statements and things put out to say, you know, don't lift over 10 pounds, uh, maybe avoid strenuous activity, avoid strenuous lifting. And so hold on, the backside, 10 pounds is about like 
what, four kilos or something. Yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. So okay. it, yeah, the conversion is 2.2. You're absolutely yes. right. And with that, you know, I think we just need to make sure that our evidence is backing up any recommendation we put out, especially in a position statement. And we weren't finding the information that would support that either to say, yes, here's the data that would show us that lifting heavier is in fact problematic and therefore we do want to avoid it. Um, Also, we had some conversations around post-surgical limitations and, you know, potentially asking a woman to lift no more than 10 pounds if her purse or her backpack is 25 pounds, you know, on a regular basis is that considered heavy for that woman. So there's a lot of gray area and we just wanted to start making some um, conclusions about strenuous activity, especially as it relates to resting um, vaginal pressure, as it relates to maximal vaginal descent or symptoms that women are feeling in these different activity categories. So just for simplicity, we kind of drew a line line down the middle and said, we're going to call one group non-strenuous. So those would be women who would report absolutely no strenuous lifting on a regular basis, no strenuous exercise on a regular basis, absolutely fine to be doing things like walking or yoga, things that we would categorize as more of the gentle space of exercise. And then on the other side of that line, we would say women who had been doing significant amount of exercise, and we just categorized it by the activity of CrossFit. Now, we could have opened that up much more broadly and to say, you know, women who are doing um, lifting activity you know, more than three times a week for at least six months or more. But we decided just for simplicity so that we could all be speaking the same language in this study and that it would be kind of an understood workout plan that would be familiar to everyone to use that group itself. And then we wanted to take out parity um, as a extra variable. So we kept this as just nulliparous women and we used the age range of 18 to 35. So we wanted to make sure that we were excluding some of the other factors that would be contributors like age, like vaginal parity, to make sure that we're just looking at the activity piece in young women. Um, and you, I was just reading because you know when you read a study and you really just focus on the points that you're really interested in and then you go back and read it and you're like, oh my God, yes. there was so much more that I didn't even realize. <laughs> um, and yes. I was that happened to me today when I was looking through your article again and I'm going, oh ah. my God, I completely missed the whole um, bone loading side of things because you did a bone loading history questionnaire. So why did you yeah. look at all of the, why did you look at that? Okay, so one of the thoughts that we had kind of leading up to this study is that if someone were newly introduced to a lot of physical load, that might be different than someone who had been doing a lot of physical conditioning and a lot of physical loading over time. So we looked for a questionnaire that might help us identify physical activity over time. And out of the research that Dr. Shaw had been doing, she knew that um, kind of a bone loading measurement would give us a more of a lifetime indication of the amount of activity that that person um, had experienced. And we know it's self-report, so there's a lot of potential limitations. But um, it was really interesting to look at the differences in bone loading. So we looked at them in sort of the formative years because we wanted to know, let's say if someone um, started to do a lot of physical activity in younger years, 
are they at higher risk for developing uh, pelvic floor dysfunction later in life? That would be one of the ways that we might be able to get a hint that that might be a contributing factor or not. And we use that bone loading history questionnaire to help us identify that load that a person experienced throughout their lifetime. And we found that there wasn't a significant difference, you know, things that weren't just completely radically different. But we thought it was kind of a useful piece to help us explain the data that we were looking at. And especially one of the things that I, I just care about that's not exactly in the pelvic space is I always want to know how do we get um, girls and women interested in activity early, keep them active through life and reduce barriers to activity. And especially if we know, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that I care so much about pelvic floor function is because if things aren't functioning properly, it just sets up such an additional barrier to physical activity. And that creates such a cascade of additional problems. If we're not being physically active, you know, you know, the, the whole cascade, but we so quickly can lose confidence and experience deleterious effects on our health. And it just, it really does spiral really quickly. So if we can help to reduce one barrier, it makes such a difference long-term. Yeah. And I find even clinically, the women who have already set up their social circle, their routine, you know, they're fit and they're healthy, getting back into it after having a baby, even if it is a traumatic psychologically, physically birth, they seem to be able to, they recover better, but they also kind of get back into that circle and that physical activity more easily than women who are sedentary or not physically active. And then, you know, a year after or 10 years after they have a baby, then they're trying to kind of get healthy and it's so much harder to find yes. the routine and get them there yes. and then get the results yes. and oh, yes. such a slippery slope. So I love like yeah, yes. trying to get, you know, catch catch these yes it applies to men too but catch these girls when they're young and little and really try to set kind of some some type of routine up yes and I also feel like if we are sending the wrong message by by saying that early activity is problematic to the pelvic floor or could be harmful and if in fact it's not we are doing everyone a disservice. So we just need to make sure that our message is supported by evidence. And I think the more that we get um, the big professional organizations and bodies to be able to speak into that and to send a very clear message so that people know how to make informed decisions, we're going to do so much better and set the next generation up for even better success. Because I know that even the generation before me, that there's a pretty strong message sent that if you are going to lift heavy Um, your uterus is going to fall out and there's going to be a lot of pelvic floor harm that comes. You know, I think there is a lot of information around, you know, women even running marathons that our female bodies even prepared for that type of exercise, which we know in fact is untrue, but that pervasive message has been kind of long lasting. And I think the more evidence that we have to show that, nope, that's not the case. And nope, here's how we do things safely it just makes it so, such a better experience for everyone. Sorry, I won't tangent on that for too long because I no, I love over. tangents. <laughs> tangents are always welcome here. It's fine. Um, but I was also going to ask you because another thing that I totally skipped on when I was um, looking at the study um, over the last couple of years was the hand grip strength. So you were using hand yeah. grip strength for trying to determine what were you trying to determine? Yeah. 
So there's actually a lot that isn't in this exact paper. How do you fit um, it all into 3,000 words? Uh, no, <laughs> we had to cut out so much. So kind of the study design that I thought was so awesome is we did a hand grip strength test on all of the participants. There were 70 in this study. We did an isometric strength test um, where we were looking at um, using like a biodex, looking at upper body and lower limb strength. And then we also did a body composition test in a bod pod. So these women really, they did us such a wonderful favor in the body of literature to help, um, help us have access to these parameters. They did, they did a, an amazing kind of a two session study where they first filled out all of the questionnaires. Um, they did a lot of the testing. And for those who are in the strenuous group, that's when they did their three repetition max testing for the lifts that they were getting ready to do. We needed to make sure that we we're applying an appropriate load so that we're really eliciting the response that we wanted to. And then on the second session, that's when they came back um, or sorry, they did the hand grip strength test and they did the um, upper and lower limb um, strength test as well at that time. And then when they came back for the second session, not only did they do a focused pelvic exam on the at the very beginning of the study, they did their workout and they came back. And what was actually really fun about that is as the team on the backside, we knew the nurse was blinded um, to know who was in each group. So we had to do some pretty elaborate um, work to make sure that um, we would keep as you know as much dry clothing as possible. We didn't want to use any emblems, and you know, in the CrossFit community, that there's some pretty um, I I wouldn't say massively unique, but pretty distinct maybe logos or shoes or things that would indicate what or group trap that that participant might fall. Like, how do you yes. hide their traps? So, oh gosh, we we used some pretty fun, funny techniques. We used a few T-shirts to okay. cover other things up and. Because if you could imagine the difference between someone doing a, a, a walk at their selected pace versus a 20-minute AMRAP, the body sweat, mm. the breathing rate, the heart rate, everything is pretty different between the two groups. So yeah. we tried to keep the nurse as blind as possible so that we wouldn't impact or influence our results. Body heat was one. We had to try to keep our body heat low. It was it was a blast. So you'd have to put makeup on them so that their faces weren't red and that they weren't red. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Luckily, they they cooled down so quickly, which actually helped us a lot. But yeah, we needed to get that second focused pelvic exam within 15 minutes. And that's not a lot of time to cool down. Yeah. So you organized this whole study and ran it, yeah. but you yeah. weren't involved in doing the pelvic exam but you did you did the other measures yes okay. that's exactly yeah. so we had a nurse who who her whole focus of that that study was just to do the focused pelvic exam and she did that before and after for each participant and I did have a team of interns who worked with me and they helped me collect the data but yes I was in charge of all other um, parameters through that whole study yeah and was there a big dropout rate to come back for that second session or no. Okay. Now this is the part that I'm actually not remembering. I don't think we had any, if I can remember right, I don't think we had any people who came to session one who didn't come to session two. Yeah, I don't remember reading that. I'm just looking through it again. Yeah. I'm like, you would have written that down. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't, I, I can't I remember. It. Yeah. I can't remember anyone who did that. We did have a few people who came to the information session and once they found out they were going to do a public exam, we're like, no, thank you. But but they didn't enroll, and that makes sense. 
So, so you had, so you measured them before. You looked at um, maximum vaginal descent through the pop cue, so looking kind of anterior, yep. posterior vaginal wall and the cervix. Uh, and then yeah. you did the peritron in order to measure pressure for resting pressure as well as pelvic floor muscle strength. That's exactly yep. right. And you did that before, and then they did their workout, and the the people yeah. who were non strenuous just walked for twenty minutes. Yes. Yep. And it was at their workout okay. pace. So we asked them to select their pace and someone walked with them during the entire exercise session. Treadmill or outside? Um, okay. So it, we had kind of a unique setup in the bottom of the, the building that we were in. It was that hyper north building at the University of Utah. It has sort of this big built-in track inside and it's underneath. So it's sort of like these big hallways underneath, and we used the hallway where someone was able to walk in front of that person or sort of to the side so that we could identify um, to people who might be walking by that they were in the middle of a study um, so that we didn't get any interruptions or change of pace. So um, Utah can be unique with weather. So we didn't want to have a different testing environment okay. for some outside and lovely and some indoors. So we did it the same for everyone. It's a good standardization. Um, yeah. So then they came back inside and immediately you did those measures again. That's exactly right. Yeah. And what did you find? How bad is <laughs> strenuous exercise? Yeah. Okay. So what we want, we wanted to know a few things between the two groups. We wanted to know, do women who routinely do strenuous exercise do they have higher pelvic floor muscle strength? We wanted to know this. And can I tell you, Lori, I really guessed wrong <laughs> in, in advance. I honestly, at the time, I was thinking, I think we have so much you know, amount of training that adapts in different parts of our body if we're using unilateral or bilateral movements and we get you know, sort of the systemic change. And I really had believed that women in the strenuous group are going to have higher pelvic floor muscle strength. And let me tell you, I was wrong, and I've never been so happy to be wrong, but I really was wrong. We found no statistical difference that um, women who walked for exercise or did kind of that recreational activity uh, versus the women who did strenuous activity on a regular basis had very similar pelvic floor muscle strength. Um, and I think that really speaks to specificity. And when we look at maybe the way that our, our muscles respond in any part of our skeleton, we know that when we specifically focus on um, different muscle groups, they respond appropriately. So for me, the big take-home message is for those of us you know, who are being extremely active and working on our fitness, we can't just rest on maybe the perception that, yes, everything's okay because I'm fit and active, uh, we really just have to be vigilant and we have to be aware that it's important that we focus on areas of our health, specifically in pelvic floor health is one one of the pieces of the puzzle that we can't ignore. So that was that was one thing that we found. Vaginal resting pressure, I think, was really unique where we found that there, there wasn't a difference between groups. So um, for both groups, it was very similar, but both the groups after exercise decreased in support. And I think that could be explained by a lot of different things, but I don't at all pretend to know the answers to everything. But I think as we find an increase in temperature, we know that temperature just does change. Elasticity, fatigue is definitely going to play a role. And one thing that we had talked about that that I don't know I have a, a great understanding 
about is for me, it makes a lot of sense that if you're doing strenuous exercise, that's very fatiguing to you that we would have maybe a temporary decrease in support. It wouldn't be sustained, but a temporary decrease in support. The part that I didn't Oh, maybe I didn't have a great explanation for is if the exercise isn't strenuous and it's not fatiguing and you're not getting um, maybe a significant change in body temperature, why would we see a a decrease in um, vaginal or resting vaginal pressure in the non-strenuous group? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, they were upright and still exercising and, you know, floor is still impact. I don't know. Again, they're still doing Mm -hmm. some type of physical activity that their body has to work against. So, I mean, if you think of, if you were to measure muscle strength at the beginning of the day, the end of the day, if people are upright walking around all day, it's probably getting a little bit tired. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was curious because the time frame between them, you know, was less than an hour for almost everyone. Mm, And I was just, I was just really curious about that because I would love to have a really beautiful set clear explanation to say oh and this explains that but I think there's just a lot of things we don't have great answers to and I think that's probably one of them yeah oh yeah 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 and again it's only the one study that has looked at this we need more studies (laughs) doing very similar things we need lots of studies yes Lori can I ask you a question I don't know how much you've talked about your data but speaking of additional studies I would love to know do you have some results and conclusions from the work that you've been doing? Because I know you have like 4,000 women that you had been um, kind of studying recently. Well, that was a survey. So again, it's hard to get a lot of information from survey. And because because we asked so many questions, there's actually so much I think that we can pull out of it. So the first paper that I've put out, um, or I've just, you know, um, submitted. So, you know, I need to wait for my rejection and then work my way down the ladder. (laughs) Oh, no, wait for your approval. That's right, because it's going to go great. great. Um, It's so hard because there's so many things that you can ask and then trying to kind of stay focused and go, okay, I could look at incontinence and all these other things, but I was really, there's not enough study done on on prolapse, so I wanted to focus on prolapse. So we were looking at... um, just looking at different varieties of loads that people lift on a regular basis and their symptomatic reports of pelvic organ prolapse. But because it's, you know, not been reviewed or accepted and I'm doing a conference on this paper in October in Adelaide for our Physiotherapy Association, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say. Oh, can I tell you, Lori, I wish they would act, and I say they, I'm not exactly sure who I mean by they, I wish they would put out some sort of bullet points of the things that you're allowed to talk about and not, because I think I had felt that way for so many years also, of not knowing what is allowed and what's not allowed. Um, Can you send raw data beforehand if people want to see it? Can you not? Are there print? Can you talk about it? Can you not? I just think it would be so helpful to have a really clear list of Especially (laughs) pre-publication. Like I know um, in print, what you submit is going to look very different in the end um, with all the review, which I'm more than I'm happy with because I would like it to be as best as it can be. Um, But yeah, Yeah. verbally, I'm just like, well, I know what, you know, we found, but I don't, you know, I understand you want people to come to a conference and listen to you speak and you want people to, you know, purchase the uh, journal articles. (laughs) Um, So if you tell everybody, especially podcasts weren't around, you, you know, we didn't have this avenue to talk about research. So I'm hesitant only because 
I still want to be able to go down those other avenues. And if I say it yeah. here, which I will, as soon as that is accepted, yes. I will tell everybody. Yes. Um, yes. Oh, good. Okay. Well, then I promise I won't make I won't make it awkward for you <laughs> because that also felt so awkward to me. I just want to have that shared moment of understanding that I I still don't exactly know the rules and parameters around that. And I think once when, it's published, um, I think you're pretty much. You know, as long as I don't read word for word the article on the podcast, (laughs) then I think we're okay. (laughs) Because you are talking about your research and this is a form of dissemination and we're not going Mm. through, you know, people still, it was, you know, it was quite a few pages. People still are going to need to look at the really pretty chart that you have in there um, and the pretty tables. (laughs) And I'm trying to look at how many pages it was, how many pages it is, seven seven pages and the font is really small <clears throat> so people people still need to go and read it and again the way that I'm assuming because you're first author uh, that you wrote most of this with yes. then the help of your team and peer review yes. um, but yep. you do explain things really well and just talking to you now like the way that you can take the research and um, sorry the way that you can put it into you know, easy terms for people to understand and just the concepts for people to understand, I think is really helpful because sometimes, you know, you can read a research study and you're still like, so what did they find? (laughs) What does this mean? Especially from a clinical application point of view, you're like, so what does this mean? Yes. I, yes, I, I think it's so important. And I love every time I get an opportunity to hear a researcher talk about the, their body of work or their information, it brings it to life to me in such a different way than just reading it on paper. And I love, I think that's one of the most beautiful things about um, having an experience on maybe a social platform or using something like a podcast or um, different avenues that we have with video to help give a voice to the researcher outside of just the, the written article alone, because I think there's so much wisdom that we miss. And I love being able to hear that come out of different people and to hear their passion and enthusiasm and the gaps that they were hoping to fill and then the questions that they still have, because there's so much that we still don't know. And that's actually a question that I want to ask you of now that you do know kind of um, your conclusions from the results of your study, what are the questions that you're still asking that you don't have answers to yet? Oh, from a prolapse standpoint, it's going to be, you know, objectively, like we know subjectively what we see is not always what we find with um, vaginal wall or organ descent. What I love in the literature over the last few years um, is the definition of pelvic organ prolapse is changing because, you know, and I still see it. There's still lots of patients that come in and the doctor or someone has told them that they have prolapse and you look and you're like, well, I mean, it moves a little bit, but I wouldn't call it prolapse and they have no symptoms. And so there's that push to say, and I don't want people to think that, um, 
you know, there's the flip side of that too, where you go, well, if you do feel something, but we don't see a lot, are you crazy? No. Um, Again, you can still have symptoms and there's not a lot of movement, but as soon as there is a big psychological component, just like there is with pain. And as soon as somebody finds out that they have what they then hear is prolapse, they then start to feel it more. They notice it more. They get worried. They stop exercising. They like, there's a whole cascade of events that happen. And so we don't have, there's not any research you know like the um as soon as people are told they have prolapse or they hear the word prolapse there is that additional do not lift attached to it and yes. from oh i totally agree the the activities of daily living bone density in women you know i think a big part was seeing a lot of postmenopausal women who are told not to lift because they have prolapse but then it, you know, you see all these studies where load is so important for bone density and not just a little bit of load, like it actually needs to be a significant yeah. amount of load to help them. So yes. the survey is I'm trying to just highlight or at least observe what women who are lifting really heavy weights and women who aren't, what their subjective symptoms are with regards to prolapse. And then we need to look at that because Mm -hmm. we need to physically see, okay, do these women have symptoms who are lifting really heavy weights? And, you know, if they, you know, how much descent do they have? Because we don't know what normal is. Like normal is not zero. Stage one is pretty much normal. Like, Movement is normal, especially after you've had a baby. So we're going to look at women who, you know, have had children. So, you know, Mm -hmm. taking the, well, bringing the parity part into it, but trying to control for hormones because, um, yeah, there's just so many populations. Sorry. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That you want to, that you want to look at. But so what are your questions still after doing all of this (laughs) research? What have you not answered? Okay, there's a few questions that I still, well, I feel like I ask new questions every single day. But but here's the questions that I don't see anyone answering yet. And it's a yet because I know it's coming. So I, I haven't seen a lot of research around temperature changes in the pelvic floor and how our core temperature changes, um, elasticity, descent, um, just general movement. Um, that's something that after the fact – we wish we would have had a thermometer um, as a part um, to measure some of the change. And that's something I haven't seen yet. I'm curious if it might be an explanatory variable for some of the phenomena we're seeing. So can you know. can you talk a little bit about that? Because I don't even think I've thought about that or heard <laughs> about that. So what do you mean? As in like yeah. core body temperature is affecting... Okay, so- Yes. Okay. So we know if we're just looking at different muscle groups and similar tissues in other parts of the body, how the synapse speed changes and the maybe the just neuromuscular activation changes with temperature. Um, also, enzymes change with temperature and a lot of just general mechanisms have, um, I don't know, I would just maybe say increased variability when we change the temperature. And the part that I'm curious about, and I don't know if it's a factor, is that as we increase our core temperature as part of exercise, is that contributing to some of the maybe decrease in vaginal resting pressure that we're seeing? Is that a potential explanatory variable? Some of the work that they're doing around pre-cooling as a part of the exercise response to help improve performance 
for those who are experiencing um, maybe significant um, increases in incontinence or maybe even prolapse during exercise, if we used a pre-cooling intervention, would we find um, maybe a change in uh, symptoms during exercise? I don't know the answer to this. There's but I'm so many studies both. that you look at and you go, just quickly check pelvic floor. Like just yes. look at their yeah. muscles and their organ descent. Like it's such yeah. an easy addition. <laughs> just add it. Yeah. Yes. And I think I think there has been a lot of, we, we just briefly mentioned this earlier, but I think this kind of wall that had been put up between um, maybe people who are in the pelvic floor space, and I would say people because it's not just physical therapists or physiotherapists, but yeah. Um, people, yeah, kind of in that community and other people who feel so uncomfortable talking about the pelvic floor, including the pelvic floor, um, maybe it feels so medical that they don't want to even include it in a study design and then the IRB and how do you get people to um, consent to that type of study, you know? So I think there has been some barriers and I'm loving the change that I've been able to see even in the past five years of Mm. having more lay people or maybe non-clinical people in different spaces talking about pelvic floor health, like, Hey, Oh, I see you like keep, keep having these conversations because the more curious we are, the more that we're going to help learn from each other and incorporate maybe a, a multi-dimensional study approach where we just like what you had mentioned, where we think, oh, don't forget the pelvic floor. And someone said, hey, I can help with that. And we can end up with more robust studies and then more robust body of knowledge at the end. Yeah, it does seem to be shifting that way. And I don't know if part of it is, um, you know, pelvic health is kind of a, a niche area that everybody's kind of talking about and everyone wants to get on the bandwagon but that's a good thing because it's bringing that awareness in you know all these different fields ex-physiology um physiotherapy you know so many different professions are now going oh yeah there's this whole other part to the body that is also important with regards to exercise and fitness and health and you know sexual function so right well, and I think it'd be so weird, like we wouldn't just like not talk about the ribs or something, you know, it just, I mean, it just, it, it's interesting to me now because I don't know your experience, but all the way through grad school, we're talking all the way through my master's program, it, I maybe had five minutes total on the pelvic floor up through my master's program. Even in anatomy, we had a section built in our chat, like our, our regular chapters and we skipped it. I'm not kidding. And so walking into kind of um, my PhD program, I had a tremendous amount to learn because it wasn't like I had this great foundation that I could build on. I was learning things from, you know, using an anatomy coloring book, just like, you know, going back years and years and years, just to make sure I knew, I knew it was really happening and going on in the mechanics and the foundations. I had to learn all of it from scratch. So I, there was a lot for me to catch up on. And then I thought, you know, had had that not been a part of my research scope, I think I could have potentially gone through my entire um, dissertation PhD program having no exposure to the pelvic floor in any way. And my field of, like, my whole discipline is in exercise physiology. Like, that feels silly to me that that could have happened so easily. Yeah. So now, are you applying or using anything that you've learned in that whole process with what you do now? <laughs> oh. Oh, that's a good question. 
Laurie, I'm in this unique space right now where I feel like I have a hairdryer in my face of 3,000 things that I'm trying to do all at once, and I'm just trying to catch my breath a little bit. So right now what I do in, um, in Idaho, I live in Idaho, and I run a lifestyle medicine clinic. And I, um, I work for one of the major hospitals here in Idaho, and we're just getting ready in August, at the beginning of August, to open our second location. So we are, <laughs> so I manage exercise physiologists and nurses and respiratory therapists, mental health therapists, dietitians, patient specialists all together to help not only do cardiac and pulmonary rehab, but to do kind of a one-on-one -on -one consult for so many services. We teach fitness classes for the community and do nutrition programs. So there's a lot that's coming into this all at once. So right in this current space right now, I have so many things that are on my research docket, but I am just like fully focused on getting that done. That is my sole focus at the moment. Now, um, you missed physiotherapy. Do you have a physiotherapist? Okay, we don't, but we refer out a lot. Okay. So certainly as a whole, yes. I'm like, hold on, uncomfortable. I know. Oh, I know. So they have an entire department that's just a physical therapy, the inpatient and outpatient clinic. And they also do the inpatient rehab unit, which I think is so awesome. Nice. And all around this area, which I think is really exciting for me, is that I have some great friends here who are specializing in women's health uh, physical therapy. And it's just so awesome that we get a chance to just connect together and have great conversations and, and sort of problem solve and troubleshoot in different ways together. And I, I just love that. It's just really fulfilling to me. So even though you haven't kind of um, continued on on the research side at this point because of all the other stuff that you're doing, have you brought the pelvic floor okay. health into all of that other stuff? Like, are, do you, you know, how do you bring pelvic floor health and make sure people are talking <laughs> about it or people are aware of it? Yeah. So I, I talk about it a lot. So my, like I have a, um, a personal business on the side, it's called fitness for us. And that's one of the areas where I get an opportunity to talk about whatever is pertinent to me, whatever, whatever I think is most important. And that's really where I get to put out a lot of that information. I also have a, a program that I did with my friend, Natalie Hodson, that's called abs core and pelvic floor. And it's just another avenue to help build awareness to give, you know, really helpful information to women who might not have access to direct care. And this is, I, which is a to lot. be honest, Lori, can I tell you how naive I was in that space? I really, and not just from a financial piece, because I know that there's a lot of financial barriers just depending on insurance situations, financial situations, co-pays. I, I really get that. I had really underestimated the lack of access to quality um, quality care, including women's health physical therapy in the States. I had no idea. I think I probably get at least five messages each week saying, hi, my name is so-and-so. I live in this area. I have absolutely no access. The nearest hospital is four hours away from me. Do you have any resources? What can, you know, what can I do? And I, I just never imagined that the need was so great. And I think part of that barrier is wanting to make sure that we're providing, you know, evidence-based care, the highest quality gold standard care, no matter where we are. But in a lot of instances, women don't have access to that. Even if they have the finances, they don't have a provider. Or there's a lot of cases where finances are the barrier or transportation is the barrier or, you know, a host of other things. And I, I, 
just, I think that it's kind of on us to be able to create some maybe new strategies or to use telehealth in a better way and to implement some great ideas of how we can help meet women exactly where they are, use the tools that we have that might not be considered the gold standard, but to provide some meaningful care and to provide some help. I, I just think it's so important. It's so important, but I feel like there are so many online programs now, or maybe just because I know a whole bunch of people who are putting out online programs that you're like, oh my gosh, how, how do we not, we, surely we have, there's, surely there are lots of resources out there that people now can access when they can't access yes. somebody else. But again, trying to work yes. out the quality of, you know, the programs, yes. you're just like, oh, they, you know, we know what is going to be quality and what isn't, but the public yep. doesn't know. And I do see a lot out there that are, again, some of them, I may not have actually looked at the program, Yes, but somebody yes. who's just done a course for a weekend and has had a baby themselves, then they put out a program and you're just like, Oh, I don't, oh, I don't know it. about oh, this. Say it. Yes. Oh no, I feel the same way. I feel like just as in kind of the research space is when we learn for the first time, of what are the search terms, what are the things we're looking for in an online database, I think there is that same sort of learning curve that the public goes through. Of if Let's say if you're seeking resources for the first time and you don't know what prolapse is called and you start typing things in and Google to try to get a resource or something and then a bunch of sexual things pop up and you're just like, whoa, time out, that's not what I wanted at all close the computer and walk away and miss an opportunity. Yeah. So I just love that we've had kind of a broader conversation in different spaces where the terminology is getting out appropriately so that, that women are hearing the words to explain symptoms that they're experiencing, having the right language skills to know, oh, that's what that's called. Like, oh, okay, I can help. And knowing how to look that up and find additional resources, I think we've we're starting to come a long way, but I know that that is a barrier. And I think by pretending like everyone just knows what to look for, we're missing an opportunity for education and growth. Yeah. And it's so nice to hear you explain all of this about everything that you're doing too, because you can see how passionate you are and that you are involved in so many things in evidence-based care in promoting physical activity. You're passionate about all this and it's not that you created an online content in order to make some passive income on the side. Sure. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. It is one of the biggest joys in my world of finding things that are helpful and yeah. I have just been so helped along my years of people who have taught me something, given me given me the language to, to know what I'm looking into or studying or helping me learn a new concept in a different way or apply a new method or understand something more deeply. And giving that back is just one of the biggest joys on earth. I, I used to teach at the University of Utah and at Boise State. And I taught in exercise physiology and kinesiology and different um, movement courses. And I, I just think education is the absolute best. And I, I look for opportunities in ways that I just get to help give that back to someone else as, as much as I can. So will you do research again? <laughs> Heck yes. <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't think I could live my life without air as much as I couldn't live my life without research. I... I don't know how you feel about it, and maybe I'm just a little bit overboard about research, but 
being able to change the environment of the way that people practice and and live their lives and the knowledge they have, uh, being able to change policies and influence a body of knowledge with new things that no one has ever known before is the highest, not not just compliment, but just fulfillment. It is so fulfilling to me. So while it is a painstaking, slow, difficult process in the the kind of the middle of the work, the outcome makes it so worth it. So I'm board certified in lifestyle medicine, and we're just getting ready to do some work around um, kind of this pilot project that we've been doing and bringing that to life and helping people who might have been in the previous stage of trying to make significant changes to their program design and to reduce barriers within healthcare and increase um, access and uh, gosh, just kind of a better environment to address mental health along with physical health and to do a better job integrating that together. That's my next big project. I'm kind wow. of excited about it. Yeah, I'm the clinical ethics lead for my hospital. And so kind of blending this piece, how can we be more ethical and how can we help people with the right service at the right time? It's just, oh, it's just my life song. I just want to do a better job at it. Oh, that is so, oh, that's so amazing. I love listening to you talk. I would have never, <laughs> because I've only started research and I'm part-time um, and I was a clinician, well, I still am a clinician, but I was a clinician first before I went into research it's been more of a selfish journey for me because I'm like, I can't help this. Well, I mean, I'm trying to help patients, but it's my question that I'm like, I need to answer this question so that I can get the question out of my head and therefore help people. I never thought that, you know, it would actually possibly change the way that other people practice and research and or policy or like I've not thought outside of my small little circle that what we're doing would have any effect. <laughs> oh, so, I, I think it has it's funny to hear that, you well, say that. Especially, well, especially because you have been really focused on this prolapse piece. Mm. And I think because there's a lack of knowledge that as clinicians, when we seek out other resources and we're learning from other clinicians in that space and researchers and finding out those things, to be able to go to you and say, hey, can you teach us what you learned? Like, we don't have the time right now to do this study you did. What did you learn? How can we... Uh, apply that. And then when we have those results to say, hey, okay, see this previous policy? Yeah, that's not evidence-based anymore. Let's step up the game and get on board with the research. That's you changing the whole field of how we do things. So it is so meaningful. So I hope that at the end of the day, you just feel so, so dang proud of the work that you're doing. I will in six to seven years. <laughs> Possibly. Um, so people can find you on social media because you have um, your business Instagram. Yes. Okay. So I have two Instagrams. Can I tell you, I have one where I just play and yeah. one that I actually really try to use to educate. So exercise and sports science is the one that I just use to play. I, okay. I just enjoy it. Fun things that I find. If it's exciting to me, that's where I go just to post it. And if I'm trying to educate or teach something new or just engage in a different way, um, I use Fitness for Us. My business name is Fitness for Us. So I, it is fitness um, and then the word for, F-O-R, and for us. And it's the underscore Monique because the Fitness for Us Instagram handle was already taken. So I included my name for delineation so that people would know it's me. Well, I'll put all the links so people can find you. Um, now... 
I can cut this out if we really need to, but I know that, you know, a lot of people who want to read research don't have access to research, but as far as I'm aware, they can contact you and you can send them the article. Okay. I believe that is true. Yes. I believe that. (laughs) Feel free. My email address is my first and last name smashed together. It's Monique Middlecoff at gmail.com. Just easy peasy. Perfect. Oh, thank you so much for giving me all your time. And you, again, you're so, I love just listening to you. Like, that's why I love just seeing the little videos of you because you're so excited and passionate. And you're actually like that (laughs) now too at like seven o'clock or eight o'clock at night. (laughs) Thank you for having me on here and just giving me an opportunity to chat with you. Oh, well, thank you. Hey everybody, it's just me again. For those who are still listening, um, I just I don't like um, I don't like bugging people, which is why I'm saving it to the end. But I just wanted to let you know if you weren't aware that um, there I've got a little kind of side part to the podcast where people can pledge to support the running of the podcast and to say thank you. I've been doing these little patron-only episodes, um, and I just wanted to let everybody know some of the episodes that I have done thus far. So while I'm recording this today, I've put out, um, I think, 12 episodes, um, and I've just recorded kind of a 13th. So The very first episode, I was reviewing a paper on inter-rater reliability of the modified Oxford scale and the paratron. I have put one out on a conference talk I did on the physiotherapy management of stress urinary incontinence. Uh, I reviewed a paper on pelvic floor safe exercises and intra-abdominal pressure. I've discussed mistakes I have made in um, being a clinician and what I have been learning from them. I talked about double unders, which is a form of skipping most often found in CrossFit. I reviewed a paper on the evaluation of pelvic floor muscle activity during running incontinent and incontinent women which was an exploratory study by Monica Leitner, who will be coming on this podcast. I've already interviewed her actually uh, last night. She is so lovely. That episode will be coming out for everybody soon. There was a portion of Professor Peter Dietz's um, discussion that I had with him on the surgical management update of Levator anti-avulsion, and just that section is in the patron-only episodes. I've discussed white what may be normal pelvic organ support. I have gone through um, how I often will progress vaginal desensitization with vaginal dilators. I looked at a study on the relationship between intra-abdominal pressure and vaginal wall movements during Valsalva in women with and without pelvic organ prolapse. And I had a discussion on terminology about... um, the, about Valsalva and you know how the interplay between the exercise physiology world, strength and conditioning world, gynecological world, um, and you know that what we are considering what a Valsalva is. So I'm hoping to put these little patron-only episodes out once a month. Often it's a way for me to dump information from from my brain. Um, but like I said, also a way to say thank you to people. So if you go to podbean.com you can search for the podcast or you can go to the pelvic health podcast.podbean.com or you can download the podbean app and once you find the podcast there's a little button that says become a patron or reward and then you can choose to pledge 
a um, dollar or two dollars US a month. You can also, you know, pledge a certain amount and then cancel so that it's not ongoing. If you do cancel, you lose access to future episodes, but you do get all of the backdated episodes. So some people in the US, I think because they're charged in, a sh they're charged in US dollars, but there's a conversion rate to Australian. It's really weird. So some women have done a one-off $25 for the year donation, and then I give them access through a Dropbox account for the year to all of the patron-only episodes so if you would like to, you can do it that way. Otherwise, another way of showing support, if you don't want to financially, which is completely fine, but just letting people know about the podcast, sharing it on social media, leaving reviews, all of that helps people find it. So thanks in advance, everyone.